Well, good morning. Again, my name is Marshall. I'll be teaching on some of the verses that Jason just read for us. I do want to make one quick introduction or point out somebody who's new here today, a group of families new, the Barbers. I saw over here at least one barber is here. There's now, there's Jess. Okay, great. Uh, Andrew and Jess Barber. Andrew, uh, there are four uh, children, three boys and a girl. Uh, Andrew will be the next, he is the next RUF campus minister at Northwestern. Uh, we are so excited that they are here. And uh, they just moved in this week, and uh, you will get to know them better. We'll introduce them formally, but it's so glad to see your faces uh, here uh, on the North Shore. I also want to remind you, I think I announced this a couple different places, but there will be a congregational meeting immediately after the service today. Uh, there's a lot been going on uh, with, well, frankly, with real estate, uh, which is a little unusual. It's kind of been fun for me to kind of get out of my lane a little bit. Um, but what I'm going to tell you in that congregational meeting, what we're going to tell you is what has been happening, give you more detail. Uh, talk to you a little bit about this campaign we're rolling out called Renew. Uh, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. We welcome all of your questions. Please ask them. And there'll also be a little bit of information if you would like to participate with us in some of the stuff that is happening uh, immediately. So I hope you can join us for a few minutes after the congregational meeting uh, to hear what has been going on. Well, would you pray with me? Uh, Romans 11 is uh, it's important. It is big. It is contested. Let's pray. Great God, I pray that you would be with us as we look now at your word, your glorious word in Romans chapter 11. And I pray that amidst uh, the difficulties, both intellectually and emotionally, that you would draw near to us, that you would speak to us through your eternal word. Be with us now, for Christ's sake we pray, amen. As a family, we, uh, we're trying to kind of, we got a, a little guy, many of you know that, and we're trying to educate him, and so we're kind of watching uh, some of the great classic movies. And so we recently rewatched a movie that I don't know that I ever expected that I would watch again, but actually it's quite good. It's The Sound of Music. Did you know The Sound of Music actually for five years was its greatest selling movie of all time? Uh, I think it won an Academy Award, um, so no spoilers here. Uh, but it centers on the story of a would-be nun, a would-be nun named Maria, who ends up the nanny or the governess uh, for the Von Trapp family. But before she meets the Von Trapps, she is training, as I said, to be a nun. That's where we meet Maria. And Maria is not very nun-like. She's not very nun-like. Okay, not because she's immoral in any way. She just isn't very much like a nun. And so this is how we meet her. This is how she's introduced to us, and this is a song. They, the nuns are singing this. When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus, and bemused. I never know exactly where I am, unpredictable as whether she's flighty as a feather. She's a darling. She's a demon. She's a lamb. She'll outpester a pest, drive a hornet from his nest. She could, whirl, she could throw a whirling dervish out of his world. She is gentle. She is wild. She's a riddle. She's a child. She's a headache. She's an angel. She's a girl. And then the punchline, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? If you've been with us, we have been studying the book of Romans, Paul's great letter to the church at Rome. And I mentioned several weeks ago that a lot of preachers, including, frankly, some of my heroes, they just completely duck and they skip Romans 9, 10, and 11. I mean, these chapters are intellectually and emotionally challenging, and at times they're even intellectually and emotionally unsatisfying. And i got to be honest, I did think about ducking. Uh, I decided not to. I was like, I'm just going to square my shoulders and I'm going to take the hit. That is Romans 9, 10, 11. And I must tell you, I'm so glad because it has not been a hit for me. 
Uh, I am so glad we have spent these weeks walking through these difficult texts. I actually somewhat wish that we had spent more time in Romans 9, 10, and 11 because in these chapters, and really nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Bible at some level, Paul soars to heights unseen. Uh, he, he, in these, studying these chapters, it's been so enriching and enlivening for myself. It's been like a feast. And as he soars higher and higher, he goes deeper and deeper. It's more than just about you and me. It's more than about just our lives. The great thing about these chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, is that we are secondary. Because the primary thing about Romans 9, 10, 11, they are about God. And sometimes, friends, we just need to behold God in all his glory. The depth of his mercy the riches of his grace, the might of his power, the mystery of his plan. Sometimes we just need to look at God and just to see him for who he is and to the best of our ability forget ourselves. You see, Romans 1 through 11, and many, they, they are the most comprehensive account of salvation and all of the good news of the gospel and all of scripture. Romans 1 to 11 are a key to understanding the rest of the Bible. Romans 1 to 11, they show us how all the other parts of the Bible fit together, how the parts relate to the whole. But more than a key, more than an interpretive grid, these verses are a masterpiece. N.T. Wright says that Romans 11 is Paul's, quote, greatest piece of writing. I still kind of think that Romans 8 is his greatest piece of writing, but the point stands. The Swiss commentator Godet says this of Romans 11, the end of Romans 11. It's like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent. The apostle turns in Romans 11 and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illumine them, and there spreads all around an immense horizon. You see, because more than a map or a key, Romans 11, 1 through 11, especially Romans 11, they are like a symphony of which Romans 11 is the climax. Let us real quickly just walk through the book of Romans. And I want to, to kind of situate where we are here in Romans 11. Romans chapter 1, the first 17 verses, it's like the overture to a symphony. It introduces all of the major themes. And in the second half uh, Paul, of chapter 1, Paul writes of God's good creation. And then he begins in chapters 2 and 3, in the end of chapter 1, frankly, to speak of both our rejection of God and our rejection of God's creation. Quoting Paul, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And because of that, Romans 1, the second half of Romans 1 and then 2 and 3 show us that we are without excuse and we are rightfully under God's judgment. But then the good news begins in chapter 3, verse 21, but God. And in chapter 3 and following, step by step, Paul shows us how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right. How Jesus has died for our sins. How he was raised for our justification. How the Christian life is to be lived not by the law but in the spirit. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity. History and eschatology. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And as Paul makes his way through these chapters in Romans, he anticipates it. The way he does it, he's almost like a lawyer who anticipates the next question. He keeps on asking these questions to move the argument forward. He's anticipating the objections. And he imagines about every imaginable objection and question. He's solving problems in Romans 1 to 11, left and right. Human sin, how to be right with God, how to live with God, how to live for God, how to understand the Jewish scriptures. But there's one stone that he has not yet overturned. And that is the unbelief of God's chosen people, Israel. 
The unbelief of God's chosen people. And the question, and Romans 11 is the climax because it answers this question. And it, the question is, how do you make sense, if you're familiar with the Jewish scriptures especially, the Old Testament, that God has made these unbreakable covenant promises to Israel, and yet there is a large-scale Jewish rejection of Jesus the Messiah. To riff on the sound of music, how do you solve a problem like Israel? How do you solve a problem like Israel? Now, Romans 11, Paul tries to answer that question. He does answer that question in at least four points. They are the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, the eternal plan of God, and the glory of God. First, the faithfulness of faithfulness of God. Look with me at verse 1. Has, and again, he's using argument, he's using questions, rhetorical questions to advance his argument. And he's asking the last question, has God rejected his people? Okay, again, remember, how do you make sense of the unbreakable covenant promises? How do you make sense of the unbreakable covenant promises and at the same time the large scale rejection of Jesus the Messiah? And you're like, and somebody, I've said this before, but you're like, well, I'm not Jewish. Most of us aren't, in this room aren't Jewish. I'm not so concerned about this question. Why is this important? Well, first of all, it's in God's word. But also, listen carefully. If God can reject his chosen people, the Jews, first of all, what does that say about God's character? And second of all, what's to stop him from rejecting you and me? Because, let's be honest, you know your heart. I know my heart. Not that faithful, that confession of sin. Like, I I use that time to confess sins, right? You know that every day, in a myriad ways, you reject God. And if we can't answer this question of verse 1, man, it's, it's a little dicey for us. What happens to Israel is very much your business and mine. Now, Paul argues vehemently. He says, by no means. It's actually the strongest negative in the Greek, in the Greek language. By no means has God rejected his people. By no means. And he gives four pieces of evidence. Four pieces of evidence. First, verse 1. Paul uses himself as an example. He tells his story. He says, I'm a Jew and God has redeemed me. That's piece of evidence number one. Piece of evidence number two. The story of Elijah. This is the story from the book of 1 Kings in the Jewish scriptures. Elijah is this faithful prophet. And Elijah says this. He's actually quoting Paul is from 1 Kings 19. Elijah says this of his fellow Israelites. They have killed the prophets. They've demolished the altars. They're trying to kill me. But God tells Elijah, and Paul reminds us here, that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is, that is, a remnant. That's argument number two. The evidence number three, that God has not rejected his people. Not only was there a remnant then, there is a remnant now. Verse five. So too at the present time, There is a remnant chosen by grace. And that last line leads us to the fourth piece of evidence that God has not forsaken, has not rejected Israel. And it's such an important piece that I made it its own point. The fourth evidence, though, of God not rejecting his people is the grace of God. God has not rejected Israel. How do we know this? The grace of God. Read with me again. Look with me. Verses 5 and 6. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant Chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
Now, I could make the same point in several places all over the Bible. I could make it from this chapter in verses 31, 30, 31, and 32. But Paul is saying, and his examples bear this out, that the only way, the only way to be and stay in a right relationship with God is by grace. By grace. Now, we have defined grace. I hope that if I can come into your bedroom in the middle of the night, I'll never do that. But if I could, I could wake you up and shake your foot and say, what is grace? That you would say, because I've said it many times, unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. Okay? Unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. And grace comes to us by looking in faith to the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. Now, I could make this point several different places from this chapter, but I'll make it here, okay? It's actually important. Stay with me. The only way to be in a right relationship with God is the grace that comes to us through and in Jesus. Now, some people have wanted to say, and Paul is here debunking this, that there's two ways to be saved. There is a Jewish way and a Jesus way. The Jewish way is that if you're born a Jew... You do the Jewish things, and you're not saved through grace. You're saved through the works of the law. And then the rest of us are saved through Jesus. No. There is one plan of salvation. To cite verse 17 and following, there is one olive tree. There is one Lord, one Savior, and he is Jesus, the Messiah. Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace through Jesus. It's not your family, it's not your nationality, it's not your bloodline, it's not your works. It is by grace. And you're like, well, what about the Old Testament saints, those people who were before Jesus? What about, to use this chapter, Marshall, what about Elijah? Elijah is not saved by his good works. He's not saved because he didn't bow down to Baal. He's not saved because he's a good dude. He is saved by grace and a faith that looks forward to Jesus. Just as you and I are saved by a faith that looks back to Jesus and his work. Elijah never knew the name Jesus, but he trusted and believed in God's promises. And it is his faith in Jesus, even though he didn't know his name, looking forward that saves him. I'm not going to turn there and do this now, but if you're taking notes and you want to go back and look, the clearest illustration of this in the New Testament is 1 Peter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, that speak of the way that Old Testament saints looked forward in faith to Jesus the Messiah. But everyone who is saved throughout time is saved by and through Jesus the Messiah. And it's essential to understand this. Because it's so easy to forget grace. So easy to forget grace. Because it's really, you know, when you come to faith, when a person comes to faith, it's easy to see that it's only because of God and his grace. But then you grow in your faith. You actually might get a little modicum of what they call holiness you might actually become a little bit righteous, right? And here's what happens. The powers of darkness pounce on your goodness. It's almost like they use judo. You know what judo is? It's the martial art that uses the forward movement of the opponent against the person. And our opponent uses our godliness, our holiness, and draws us in and starts to slowly convince us that it's about us, that it's about us, and we forget grace. You see, friends, the question of how God deals with his people throughout time is huge because we all reject God and we desperately need his grace. 
Israel's problem is not that they're bad. Israel's problem is not that they're immoral. The problem is they have stopped loving and trusting grace and the grace of God. They have started trusting themselves. They disobeyed. They wandered away. And so do we. The only thing that will keep you loving grace and knowing it is knowing that you need it. Do you love God's grace? Do you stand in God's grace? Let me illustrate real quickly with the relationship of marriage. Um, you know, if you're in love, if you love your spouse, that actually will not hold your marriage together. Love will not hold your marriage together. If you've been married for longer than 10 minutes, you'll understand this point. Only grace, mercy, and forgiveness will hold your mer- marriage together. Because the feeling of being in love is not enough. The only way to keep and grow your marriage is how? By grace and forgiveness. The other per- I say this at every wedding ceremony I do. The person sitting across from me that you're taking these vows, they're going to disappoint you. They will. The only way that you can make it and actually grow is to experience grace and forgiveness. And the same is true with our relationship with God. It begins in grace and it goes on in grace. Do you love God's grace? And so this passage demonstrates the faithfulness of God and the grace of God as the way that he has not rejected his people. But then third, and this may be the main point of this passage is the plan of God. Thirdly, the plan of God. And usually I talk about the verses and then I illustrate, but today I'm going to illustrate first and then talk about the verses. I want you to imagine that there is a dad, there's a father, and he has 12 sons. And he wants to spend time with his 12 sons, so he puts a basketball hoop, as all fathers should, in their driveway. I'm just kidding. Um, just, I'm speaking my love language now. Um, but he, built, he puts a basketball hoop in his driveway, and he invites all of his 12 sons to come and play with him. And none of them do. They don't come play with him. And he's, like, he goes out there, every, you know, he shoots baskets, and nobody comes to join him. So eventually the dad puts a sign, and he, says every, he puts a sign in the front yard and says, every Saturday at 10 a.m. I'm going to be here shooting baskets. Whoever would like to, please come play basketball with me. Well, there's an orphanage down the street. And the boys start coming. They start coming in droves to play basketball with these other boys' father. And so they start playing basketball, and the dad says, you know what, this is great. I'm going to welcome you into my house. If you need a coat, go to the fridge. If you need a meal, I'll feed you. Come into the kitchen. My house is your house. I'm going to start to treat you like my sons. Now, the other sons, the 12 sons, they've stayed away. But they're up on the second floor. They're out there in the window, and they're looking out. (laughs) They're seeing this. They're seeing their dad playing with others, treating them as his sons now. And what happens is some of the orphan boys... They eventually go upstairs and they invite the biological sons to come on down. Let's go play basketball with your dad and with ours. And then the biological children start to join the party and it is, it is amazing. Now that's a silly illustration. I got that from another preacher. But I want to tell you that that is actually what is being said here. Okay? What Paul is saying here, and he says it four different times in four different ways, is the illustration of how God's plan works, okay? In verses, I'm not going to go through all this. I'm just going to tell you, though. In verses 11 and 12, he describes it as like a chain of blessing. He says it another way in verses 13 to 16 when he speaks of his own ministry. In verses 17 to 24, he speaks of this story as the story of an olive tree and the grafting and all this. And then, fourth and final, and I'll read these verses, verses 25 and 26, He speaks of this plan of God as a divine mystery. Read with me verses 25 and 26. Paul, writing to Gentiles, says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hearting has come upon Israel until the fulfillment of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what Paul says, and he says it four different ways, again, there's a five-part plan that God has. There's a five-part plan. Here's the five-part plan. Part number one, God makes promises and blesses the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. Part two, God's, Israel's heart is hardened. They reject God. Part three, the Gentiles come into those promises. They inherit the promises of God. They are saved. Part four, this leads to Jewish envy of the Gentiles, and they come back to God. They are restored to the Father. And part five, this leads to fullness. To quote one of the verses, how much more the full inclusion, Jew and Gentile together. It's a five-part plan said four different times in this text. Now, Paul calls it here a mystery. And it's not the mystery that we understand mystery of something that is hidden or unknown. The biblical sense of mystery is something that was hidden in the past but has now been revealed. Paul is making clear what has been true. Now, this is not the only place this happens. This is, if you read through the book of Acts, I know I'm, this is a little bit technical, but it's important to understand. At least four different times in the book of Acts, this is exactly what happens. Is Paul goes first to the Jews, they reject, and then he goes to the Gentiles with the hope that the Jews are drawn in. N.T. Wright, interestingly, suggests that Paul's statements here are actually an echo of Jesus' most famous story. Jesus' most famous story is the story of the prodigal son or the two sons. The wayward son who goes away, the wayward son who comes back. And that wayward son, they throw a party and it makes the elder son jealous. And the father goes out to that older son and invites him in. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. Now verse 26 has created a lot of ulcers in theologians and commentators. Look with me at the beginning of verse 26. There's a lot of things I need to address in this passage. This is the only real technical one I'm going to address. Verse 26, and in this way, quote, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? I need to tell you that some of my favorite commentators on the Bible, they disagree about this. I actually think I changed my mind studying this week. What, let me give you three options. One that is not an option really, but people have taught it. And then two of the most, I think the two right options. And I don't know which one's the right one. But I have an opinion. All Israel, what does all Israel be say? Option number one, this is the one that has no biblical support, either here or elsewhere. And this is saying, that, but it is taught. that They're speaking of some sort of political salvation for the modern state of Israel. Okay? There's many reasons this can't be true. For one, it says saved. And saved in the scriptures always refers to a right relationship with the living God through Jesus. So it can't be referring to that, a, a political salvation for the modern nation of Israel. Option two, what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? And actually, there's one way of reading this. If you look back at our uh, assurance of pardon, people use the assurance of pardon verse and another verse in the New Testament. Uh, to get to this conclusion, which is all Israel be saved means all believers throughout time, including both Jews and Gentiles. That's option two, all Jews and Gentiles, basically the church, everybody who believes in Jesus. Or third option, all Israel be saved means Israel as a whole, ethnic Jews will be saved, not every Jew without exception, but throughout time, there will be Jews who profess Jesus as Messiah, and perhaps there's an especial surge of Jewish belief at the end of time. Let me say that one again. That's the one I'm partial to this week. Uh, Israel as a whole will be saved. 
Not every Jew without exception. You have to believe in Jesus. Not every Jew without exception, but throughout time, there will be Jews who profess Jesus as the Messiah, and there perhaps will be a surge at the end of time in Jewish belief. Now, I don't really know, okay? I'm not even sure Paul knows, okay? I guess he does. He wrote these verses. Well, we do know God has not forsaken his promises. God has not forsaken his promises. And it's at this point that the Apostle Paul has come to the end of himself. It's like Paul has, for 11 chapters, he's been writing this. I mean, there's nowhere in Scripture that has this kind of theology, this kind of clear thinking. Chapters 1 through 11 of Roman. But here at the end of Romans 11, 33 and following, he, he just, he can't go any further. It's like, I've come this far and I can't go, I, I, I got nothing else to say. And what does he do? He falls down in worship of his God. This is about the glory of God. Paul is overcome. These are some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I memorized them ago, years ago in the NIV. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just doesn't know what else to say, so he falls on his face in worship. After 11 chapters of mind-bending, grace-saturated theology, this is all that he can do. Let's just look real quickly at verse 36. I'm riffing on John Stott here. If we ask where all things come from, the answer is from God. If we ask how all things came to be and how they remain in being, the answer is through God. And if we ask why everything came into be and where everything is going, our answer must be for and to God. From God, through God, for God, to God. God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of everything. He is the source. He is the means. He is the goal. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the A and the Z, and he is every letter in between. And these verses remind us that theology, the study of God and his word, and worship of God can never be divorced. Because on the one hand, there can be no worship of God without understanding God and theology. We do not worship an unknown God. We worship a God who has revealed himself in Scripture, and all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God, of Christ in Scripture. You see, our worship of God rises from who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. And it's all that, Paul, that God has done in Romans 1 to 11 that Paul has written. It's that that provokes Paul to this outburst of praise. You need theology. You need study of God's word. But on the other hand, Presbyterians, there should be no theology without worship. If we stop at thinking and studying, cool, detached, observing, we are missing the boat. True knowledge of God always leads to worship. Our place is on our faces before God in adoration. Our place is dancing before God with all our might like David. And I want you to see this because this is the narrative arc of the whole book of Romans. The first 11 chapters are this great theology about who God is, the revelation of his plan. That's verse, most of chapters 1 to 11. Then you get to these last several verses, which are this praise, this worship. So you get study, worship. But you know what next week is, Romans 12? It's how to live it out. Friends, transformation never comes without love 
and joy. And joy and love never come without understanding just how big and great and wide is God's plan. And as we understand just how great his plan is, we're driven to worship. Our hearts are inflamed with joy and worship, and we are changed. Therefore, be renewed by the transformed uh, minds, which will be next week's sermon. And it's a circle that leads back on itself. We study God. We learn God. Our hearts are moved. We love God. Our hearts are changed, and we are changed. So lift up your eyes and see God's plan. You know, they sing that song again at the end of, at the, end of the sound of music. How do you solve a problem like Maria? You know where they sing it? Somebody's going to call it out? No? At the wedding. How do you solve a problem like Maria? With a loving widower with seven children who love her. How do you solve a problem like Israel? How do you solve a problem like people like you and me who reject God? The only way to solve a problem like you and me is in a relationship with a living God who has given himself for us. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and understanding of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Our God is just so good. Let me pray. God, with the, on the Apostle Paul's backs, we've tried to scale a height. And our, our glimpses are fleeting and they are incomplete, but they are glorious. We thank you for your faithfulness despite our faithlessness. We thank you for our grace despite our sin. We thank you for your plan despite our best efforts to subvert it. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your glory, which is great and good and given to us. We thank you, Jesus. Be our vision. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.